to a better world. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have another very interesting show. We have invited back one of my favorite teachers and neuroscientists, Dr. Joe Dispenza, who's the author of numerous books. Those of you who listen with regularity know that neuroscience, neuropsychology, the relationship of the mind to the brain, to our ideas of psychological, emotional, and spiritual development are really the foundations of what we do here as a way of affecting, creating a better world. I mean, after all, when we have these understandings in place of human psychology, human biology, Everything else moves of a piece, if you will. So that's why it's so useful for me and for our audience to get the teachings that people like Joe Dispenza bring forward through his many books, through his workshops, seminars across the world. And I've attended some of them, and I tell you, this is really a mind-opening and brain-expanding experience. Joe has written a number of books most recently, You Are the Placebo, and prior to that, Evolve Your Brain, The Science of Changing Your Mind, another Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, that is How to Lose Your Mind and Create a New One, and that and the last, The Placebo, is been, has been published by Hay House. Now, a few other words about Joe biographically. Joe Dispenza first became quite popular and caught the public's eye as one of the scientists featured in the award-winning film What the Bleep Do We Know back in 2004. Since then, Joe has gotten known worldwide. He has been asked to teach in some 26 countries over six continents and has been led in so many interesting directions having to do with this interface of mind, brain, nervous system, understanding the subtler realms of human potential. And that's what we'll be speaking about with Joe today. So, Joe Dispenza, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. Thank you, Mitchell. I'm very happy to be with you again. Good. I'm glad. We love having you, Joe, because... Your information and your experience as well, it's all so grounded in your own personal experience and personal story, just brings a a light and an intelligence to the subject that uh, I know people, literally thousands across the world are benefiting from throughout. Why don't we go first to you are the placebo, and before we look at how you are and I am the placebo, could you just define for our audience, most people are familiar with it, but now it's been rather scientifically confirmed over and again. Could you just talk to us a little bit about what is placebo and the most notable studies, Joe, that you have come across that help to make the scientific case? Sure. Um, the concept of the placebo has been around for thousands of years. We've just updated it in terms of medicine. I mean, the concept of giving somebody a sugar pill or a saline injection or performing some false surgery or procedure allows a certain percentage of people to accept, believe, and surrender without any analysis that they're getting a real substance or treatment and they begin to program their autonomic nervous system 
to the thought that they're getting the real substance to make their own pharmacy of chemicals that matches the exact same chemical they think they're taking or exact same treatment they think they're receiving. So the question is, is it the innate, is it the inert substance that's doing the healing or is it the body's innate ability to heal? So then if you understand the science of the placebo, the question is, can you teach it? Because the sugar pill then, as an example, represents a potential in the quantum field, a possibility. And so when a person yeah. gets a pill, they think, oh, I could get better. They start speculating possibility. Oh, this could be my ticket to health. When they marry that intention with an elevated emotion, it's the combination, Mitch, of a clear intention and an elevated emotion that changes our state of being from living in the past to living in the future. So instead of selecting or using a sugar pill that's a known, can you select a possibility that already exists in the quantum field, an unknown, and revisit that unknown enough times until you begin to make it known so that your biology begins to change. And so you don't really need the sugar pill once you understand how it works because you can do the exact same mechanism, but instead of putting your belief in something outside of you, you can put your belief in something inside of you. Exactly. In fact, you're reminding me, Joe, because you're saying that this mechanism has been around with us for thousands of years. You could speculate also that in different kinds of shamanic or religious ceremonies or rituals, that it was the shaking of a rattle or the movement around somebody's head or heart or kidneys, for that matter, would represent that healing that the person wants, and that's that thought you were speaking of, that this motion or this ritual is doing what I needed to do to uh, establish my healing. Exactly. And, um, you know, there are certain variables in, in studying it extensively that add to the effects of, of mind having an effect on matter. I mean, think about it. If 81% of the people that are in a placebo study for depression get better by taking a placebo, it means then that as they're taking that substance, they're programming their autonomic nervous system to make their own pharmacy of antidepressants that actually are the same antidepressants that they think they're taking. So our nervous system becomes our own uh, pharmacy. And so, you know, in, in, in antiquity... It may have been the witch doctor. It may have been the shaman that induced the state for the person to change their state of being and be open to uh, suggestibility, to be open to possibility. And so yeah. the modern-day witch doctor, the modern-day shaman, sometimes turns out to be wearing a white lab coat and a stethoscope. And <laughs> that's right. And people into a very specific destiny, uh, and they're unconscious right. of even influencing them. And in fact, what you're bringing up here, uh, at least by implication, is that there's a social quality, a very important social quality to the entire interaction. In other words, if so many people, such a high percentage of people, experience the effect and affirm that this is so, they have experienced the healing through what is found out perhaps later to be a placebo pill, then that means the agreement and the consensus among the group, you could say the sociology, the social aspect of medicine, is helping to further make it real. Could you comment on that? 
Uh, sure. You know, there's some very specific elements. I mean, it turns out that if a doctor is enthusiastic about a placebo and they uh, create the right environmental conditions with the right level of uh, energy attitude-wise, and yeah. also they set up the environmental conditions where the person really can um, surrender, uh, there's, a, there's a very significant effect that takes place in a larger majority of people. And it's kind of crazy because uh, when I wrote the placebo, I think one of the biggest things I realized is how conditioned we really are as people. Uh, yeah. And so uh, it works for us or it works against us. I mean, and, and the question is how we can use it to our greatest advantage. Yes, exactly. By choice, in other words. Yes, indeed. Right. It's really true. Yeah. Um, if you were to kind of step back and look at that, it's a very powerful point, by the way. Really want to, you know, emphasize that the extent to which we are conditioned and what we also uh, accept without proof as real. And we can, through that same neuroplasticity, if you will, that same mutability, exchange that one belief for one that might be much more uh, healing and life-affirming. And I know uh, that you, you know, do a now lot we're of talking. work like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're so, talking, yes. Yeah, now we're talking because I don't think people really realize to the extent that they accept, believe, and surrender to thoughts mm-hmm. or input from their environment that literally programs them into a very specific destiny. As an example, you could take a group of people that uh, have a diagnosis of asthma, and you can take those people and you can tell them that you're giving them a drug to induce, uh, to, um, to, to, you're you're telling them you're going to give them a drug that's going to um, reduce their asthma, Okay, mm-hmm. but you're giving yeah. them the exact drug that enhances asthmatic reaction, causes bronchial uh, constriction. Ah, yeah. Their belief that they're getting the substance that's taking their asthma away is greater than the drug that induces their condition. That's how powerful thought is, if you really let that in. Indeed. Would that be called a nocebo? Uh, yeah, it would be called a nocebo in a, in a sense. I mean, you, there's there's other case studies where they can where they took a group of Japanese uh, children that were sensitive sensitive to poison ivy, and they told those children that they were giving them a leaf that looks like poison ivy, but it wasn't. And then they were giving them another time they were giving them a leaf that was um, was not poison ivy and told them that it was. And almost all the children that got the inert substance got the, got the rash on their arm. And all the kids that thought that they got the, the, the poison ivy, um, that didn't get the poison ivy, but got the inert leaf, didn't get any uh, reaction when, they, when the poison ivy was rubbed on them. So that's another example of the nocebo. I mean, that's how powerful yeah. uh, thought can be. Yeah. Exactly. When I think about it, what you're really saying is that we talk about mind over matter, uh, we're also, as a result, talking about mind over biology. Or you could say, um, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about this, that the mind and biology are operating perhaps uh, according to different laws or a certain different hierarchy of laws. 
Well, uh, again, this is uh, the, the ability to have our thoughts program our biology is literally mind over matter because yes. thought is an etherical thing, but once a set of neurons fires in the brain and you get enough yes. of brain activity, you produce a level of mind. Once you have a level of mind, all of a sudden another part of the brain called the chemical brain or the limbic brain begins to create a batch of chemicals, neuropeptides, that match the thoughts that you're thinking. Those neuropeptides then begin to signal different hormonal centers for you to begin to feel exactly the way you were just thinking. The moment you begin mm-hmm. to feel equal to how you're thinking, now your mind and body are working together. So here's an example. If you're thinking uh, about some future worst-case scenario that could happen in your life, and you attend to that thought to the exclusion of everything else, the thought that you're creating produces a host of chemicals that begins to make you feel vigilant or worried or anxious. The moment you feel anxious or worried or vigilant, you're going to think more corresponding thoughts equal to that emotional state, which makes more chemicals for you to feel more anxious and vigilant and and worried, which then turns on more thoughts and you get caught in this loop of thinking and feeling. Now, how you think and how you feel creates a state of being. But the type of chemicals, the specific chemicals that you're creating, are derived from the hormones of stress. And it's a scientific fact that the long-term effects of the hormones of stress push the genetic buttons that create disease. So then if you can turn on the stress response just by thinking about the worst thing that could happen in your life, and you can't turn off the stress response you're headed for a disease, which means by very nature that your thoughts literally can make you sick. So mm-hmm. your thoughts can make you sick. Is it possible then that your thoughts can make you well? So then teaching people then, instead of selecting the worst thing that could happen to them, to begin to select another possibility or another potential. Now, here's the caveat. You can't wait for your healing to feel wholeness. You know, you can't wait for your, your transformation mm-hmm. to give you can't wait for your tra- uh, shift to feel joy. I mean, that's the Newtonian right. model of cause and effect, uh, waiting for something outside of us to change sure. how we feel. When inside. I make a million dollars, I will be happy. Right. But the quantum model of reality is not about cause and effect. It's about causing an effect. So then you have to feel wholeness before yeah. the, healness, the healing can occur. You have to be in a state of gratitude so that your body is the unconscious mind begins to believe that that future reality is happening to you in the present moment because gratitude means it's happening to you or it's already happened emotionally. So then turning that battleship around and teaching people then that when they do do that, literally they begin to upregulate new genes in new ways and downregulate the genes that have to do with inflammation and disease in other ways. And so when people can begin to assign meaning to what they're doing and begin to understand, you know, the what, why, then the how becomes easier. And so that's kind of what we've done over the course of the last uh, three years in, in teaching people how to do this. And by the way, we've been pleasantly surprised to actually see things that are healing that we never ever anticipated would ever heal um, just by thought alone. So mm. it's a skill. The more you practice it, the better you get at it. It is a skill. And, of course, you're enticing me to ask you uh, for a few examples of this. But just prior to that, uh, what I'm gathering to translate would be to say rather than generating more uh, 
cortisol release into the bloodstream, we'll be really looking to create more something like oxytocin, possibly exactly. some more and, serotonin. And, uh, you know, like when you just go for, let's just say you decide to wake up in the morning and you make an effort to give thanks for your life, things that you have in your life, and then give thanks for the things that you're going to have in your life. And now this isn't an intellectual mm-hmm. process, but it's really actually a bodily, you know, physiological process. It's sure. it's really a visceral process. And you can create the emotion of gratitude, and you can linger in that emotion. Even just for 10 minutes, you will secrete very specific chemicals that activate another chemical called immunoglobulin A, or a, uh, IgA. That chemical is the primary defense against bacteria and viruses that your body has. And so mm. by you just creating the, 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 the chemical of, of gratitude and you're able to sustain it, you're releasing about 1,400 different chemicals into your body that actually help the immune system to heal and respond. If you take a person and you have them focus on 10 minutes of anger or hostility or frustration or fear, they diminish the release of immunoglobulin A, and they secrete 1,300 different chemicals that last from 90 minutes to two seconds that begin to deplete the body's energy system and ultimately begin to cause the person to live in emergency mode. So that's 70% of the time for most people. So then it's no wonder that when you go to a, you look at a, uh, a corporation or a department of some company where the whole entire a company or that whole section, a whole department, is sick at the same time, and people think it's the bacteria that did it. No, the bacteria didn't make them sick. They made themselves sick because the stress hormones really weakens the immune system. Because if you're mobilizing all this energy for some threat or some stress in your external environment, there's no energy in your internal environment for growth and repair. So then the person then is getting sick not because of the bacteria. Those bacteria are called opportunistic bacteria because they're waiting for an opportunity for our immune system to become compromised. So then just by changing and regulating your internal state, not only are you secreting a whole different blend of chemicals, but those chemicals are beginning to signal genes and instruct genes to begin to make a host of different other proteins that are going to support your well-being. Absolutely. That's so beautifully put, Joe. Absolutely. This is turning, you use the phrase, turning around the battleship, and so much so that's the case because we have been entrained and myelinated, in fact, in certain directions about what we think is possible. That is more accurately what we've been programmed to believe is possible, and it has been uh, rather deepened, entrenched, if you will, by various Emotions, like you were talking about shifting the emotion as one of the variables needed to make the thought have more power. So, unfortunately, it's been more in the direction, generally speaking, of narrowing possibilities rather than expanding. And I know in your work in person, when you are teaching your classes, your workshops, you are very uh, engaged in helping people to awaken to another uh, type of empowering their thought with the feeling of what they want to happen in their lives in the present and how that, you know, um, begins to really set the stage 
for X, Y, or Z to actually occur. Well, let's talk Very about that. Because I think it's a fundamentally. Yeah, let's do it. Please. Um, your suggestibility turns out that the more suggestible you are to thoughts, the less analytical you are. The mm-hmm. less analytical you are, the more suggestible you are to certain thoughts. So a person who's highly analytical has to run everything through a filter. Now, what separates your conscious mind from your subconscious mind literally is your analytical mind. And when we're living by the hormones of stress or we get a diagnosis or um, we have a loss or a tragedy in our life, the chemicals that are created from the stress hormones actually endorse the analytical mind to go into a higher gear. When that occurs now, the brainwaves move into a higher level of beta, higher, uh, a higher super-aroused state, mm-hmm. moving further yeah. away from the operating system because as you begin to, to change your and regulate your internal states, you begin to slow your brainwaves down, and when that occurs, the analytical mind shuts off and you slip into the operating system where you can begin to make changes and begin to program your autonomic nervous system. So a person then is given a diagnosis of cancer or MS or whatever. The moment they get the diagnosis, the typical emotion that they feel is fear. The moment they feel fear, they could only accept, believe, and surrender. That's what suggestibility is. They'll only mm-hmm. accept and surrender without any analysis to thoughts that are equal to their emotional state. So then they won't accept, believe, and surrender to any thoughts that are not equal to fear. They could think positively all they want, but if they're living in fear, since thoughts are the language of the brain and feelings are the language of body, their mind and body are in opposition. So the result is that they can't, the thoughts of, you know, I'm going to beat this or I'm going to get healthy, working against the, the feeling of being afraid it never programs the autonomic nervous system because the analytical mind can't accept any thought that's not equal to the person's fear. So you change mm-hmm. that person's state into a state of gratitude, and you get them beyond their fear. You get them into a whole new different state emotionally. Then let's just say they embody gratitude. Then the moment they're feeling gratitude or they're feeling inspired or they're feeling empowered or they're feeling unlimited, they will accept, believe, and surrender to the thoughts that are equal to that emotional state, and they'll begin to program their autonomic nervous system into a whole new destiny. And that's why in our workshops we very rarely answer questions for people because I know that a person who's suffering or struggling in their life and can't get beyond themselves and they're feeling an emotion, a limited emotion, if we tell them the answer to their problem, even if we tell them the answer, they can't hear it because they can't accept, believe, and surrender to it because they're not in the right emotional state. If I say to them, look, give me three days. Just take the ride with me. Come on, let's just cross this river together and let's get mm-hmm. beyond emotions that keep you anchored to the past. So emotions can then either keep us anchored to the past or we can use elevated emotions to drive us into a new future. So it turns out that the person, as soon as they overcome their fear, as soon as they get beyond the addiction of frustration and anger and hatred or whatever it is, their body is no longer living in the past, and now they can see a whole new landscape. They can see a a whole new possibility because they're not viewing their future through the lens of the past. So then when they change their emotional state, then I'm passionate about that because once they start feeling those elevated emotions, 
they begin to program their autonomic nervous system into a new destiny, and they're freeing themselves, really, from the chains of the past, and the body's no longer believing. It's living in the same environmental conditions, the same experiences, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. The body now is no longer um, connected to the past because emotions are a record of the past. Yes, indeed. That's very, very interesting. And uh, I'd like to uh, circle back to that idea of of when someone pictures the worst-case scenario. After all, that's a conversation in the collective that's very popular. Let's look at all possibilities. Let's look at if our endeavor is going to be brilliantly successful. But as you're saying, you know, the brain has a negative bias anyway for, you know, and essentially physiologically for, um, I guess we understand it to be survival purposes. So taking that into consideration, we do play out what would be the worst thing that could happen? Is there a way, and let's say that there's a certain, you know, I'm going to dare use the word realism here. There's a certain common sense to that, but you're warning us that there's, a, you could say, an electrochemical hazard to it at the same time. Because if we start to manufacture those chemicals that go with the emotions of imagining a worst case, we're in some trouble. We're digging a ditch for ourselves. Is there a way, now that you've brought up the analytic aspect here, is there a way to detachedly look at, play through what might be considered a potential worst case without feeding it with those emotions, therefore those chemicals, and yet be apprised for future, yet be putting most of the attention and energy into the desired outcome? Okay, uh, let's start from the top here. I think that there's nothing wrong with anticipating the future. Uh, the brain actually is an anticipation machine. It always likes to anticipate the future based on the past. And mm -hmm. when you're in survival and when you're uh, competing in the jungle and there's adverse conditions in your environment and you have to manipulate and get what you want, um, sometimes that process works to our advantage. The difficulty yes. is, is that when we're in crisis or trauma or disease or diagnosis or loss, all of those elements in our environment really uh, turn on that fight-or-flight nervous system. And when, when that occurs now, now we start getting out of balance because now we're, we're, we're predicting the worst thing that could happen in our life and we're getting ready for the outcome emotionally because if we pick the worst thing that could happen in our life and it doesn't happen, anything less means there's better chances of survival. So I just wrote a blog this morning for our website, and I was talking about why is it that ten things could, good things can happen to us in one day and one bad thing happens to us in one day, and we remember the one bad and not the ten good things. That's because in survival, if your environment was pressing you and you had to survive in antiquity, uh, you better pay attention to the one mishap because once you understand what happened, you're, you're primed for in case it happens again, that you'll be prepared for it. That's called survival. So that yes. survival gene is actually exactly. activated in us. And as long as we're living in survival, we're always going to try to predict the future based on the past. So that's what survival is about. So 
70% of the time, people live in survival. And so now they're living by the emotions of aggression or anger, hostility or competition or violence or fear or anxiety or worry or guilt or shame or sadness, pain, suffering, Mm -hmm. depression. They're living by those states. And so a person then is already, already uh, living in the predictable future biochemically. uh, Yes. Because of their because of their experience of the past, and they're not uh, in the present moment. So, why is this relevant? Well, because <clears throat> if you are going to help a person really begin to make measurable changes in their health and in their life, uh, then there's nothing wrong with anticipating or knowing what the future could be like. But you only see it as one possibility, not as the ultimate possibility. So then the person then who's going to begin to change their uh, biochemical state, the first thing they have to do is they have to find the present moment because they may say, yeah, I want a healing, but if they woke up every morning and they got out of bed on the same side and they went through a series of routine behaviors that led to the same experiences that produced the same emotions because they're making the same choices, and they've done Mm -hmm. that for 20 or 30 years, then their body's already in a predictable future because uh, they've done it every day in the past. And so their body's already programmed into a genetic destiny. So getting a person to overcome those habituations in mind and body and thoughts and feelings and behaviors and helping them to surrender to the present moment, when they start getting present and their brain and body is no longer in that predictable future, now is the, for them, is the time for them to begin to create and to begin to select instead of the worst-case scenario, some great scenario. And just like they did the way they created their anxiety, to begin to uh, emotionally condition their body into a new future instead of into that predictable future. And if they do it properly, they'll begin to see measurable changes in their health and in their life. And and it takes just a little bit of awareness. It takes some persistence and determination. And it Mm -hmm. requires uh, uh, some repetition in the process. Yes, yes. It's fabulous. It's so empowering to hear you speak about this and about what the real biochemical, bioelectrical setup is and who we are, in a sense, outside that, looking into it and having some real measure of control over it. So at the end of the day, what I feel you're really speaking about here, Joe, is really developing a sense of self-mastery. Would sure, you say I mean, that that's really the direction? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, look, I mean, this is a time in history, and, and this is what I've realized in the last three years. This is mm-hmm. a time in history where it's not enough to know. This is a time in history to know how. And I think that yeah. science has become the contemporary language of mysticism. Science is the great way to demystify the mystical. So if you blend a little quantum physics with a little neuroscience, with a little neuroendocrinology, <laughs> a little Stir, psychoneuro, a little science, eye of newt, <laughs> yeah, and a little eye of newt, and a little epigenetics, people are going to go, wow, knowledge right. is power, but knowledge about myself is self-empowerment. Now, when you understand that knowledge, when you understand that philosophy, when you understand that theoretical information, mm-hmm. it's pretty much void of any experience. But if you take that information and you apply it or you personalize it or you demonstrate it, it means you're going to have to modify your behaviors in some way and do something differently. 
Well, if you can get your behaviors to match your intentions or your actions equal to your thoughts, you can get your mind and body working together, you're going to have a new experience. Now, once you have a new experience, the experience is going to enrich the circuits in your brain that you learned philosophically. In other words, when you learn something, you, you, you make new connections in your brain, but the experience then enriches the circuitry in your brain, and then the brain makes a chemical called a feeling or an emotion. Now you begin to embody that information. Yeah. You begin to embody the philosophy. You begin to teach your body chemically to understand what your mind is intellectually understood. So Quite knowledge literally. is for the mind and experiences for the body. And in that moment, you literally are embodying the knowledge and you're signaling new genes in new ways because you're chemically instructing your body to understand what your mind is intellectually understood. Now, now you've initiated it, but it's not enough to do it once. If you can repeat the experience again, over and over again, both neurologically and chemically, you'll condition your body to know how to do it as well as your conscious mind. In other words, your mind and body will merge as one. And when your mind and body merges as one, now it's becoming innate in you. It's second nature. It's who you are. It's effortless. Uh, you've done it so many times, you don't even have to think about it. You know how you do it, but you don't even know how you know how. So, the, so our journey is to go from philosopher to initiate to master, from mind to body to soul, from knowledge to experience to wisdom, from thinking to doing to being. And we have all the biological and neurological machinery to do this. And so when people begin to say, okay, look, I got the philosophy, I understand it, now teach me how to do it, those are the people I want to hang out with. Because Absolutely. Uh, ten years ago, the, the, the philosophy was enticing. Now people are like, show me how to do this. Just tell me how to do it. I'll practice it until I start getting my own effects in my life. And that's, those are the people that really... Uh, make it exciting because they're doers. Turn you on, and exactly. These are the people who are changing the world, quite literally. Talking about changing the world, you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every week on these airwaves, and today we are speaking with Dr. Joe Dispenza, teacher, author, and today our focus is You Are the Placebo. Joe has been on the show a number of times as well as on the TV show. So if you do not yet get our A Better World newsletter that's sent out to some 70,000 people every single week from our office and studio here in New York City, just go to our website, abetterworld.tv, and sign up. It's a free newsletter, and it announces who we will have on each of the shows, the radio and the TV shows, and we'd love to have you part of A Better World family and community. And so, Joe Dispenza, I so enjoy listening to you and hearing what you have to say. They're so instructive and powerful. There's this, you know, psyche and soma are really kind of getting united. This is one of the oldest stories in the world since they were disunited, by the way, some years back with the Cartesian model and to some extent the Newtonian. And so it's very much these days a time of of synthesis, of fusion, of unity, and bringing together the seemingly disparate parts under one roof, which, of course, is also the purpose of so many different spiritual traditions. And what I see you doing using the language of science, using the language of neuroscience and quantum physics is bringing these under one roof and having the language of science, of course, is our 
language today. It's our fundamental currency, if you will. And when we understand things through that in our culture, in our society. So you're uh, weaving these points together, uh, allowing us to become more masterful over our present and therefore our future is something that I I have witnessed in some of the uh, workshops you've given. I know that your teaching is a large part of what you do. Could you share some of what you're experiencing with people, what people are experiencing in your workshops and the instruments that you're using to do some of the measurements of the changes taking place? Sure. I'll, I'll talk about it on two levels, Mitch. One level I'll talk about just the objective measurements we're seeing, and then maybe I'll share a few stories that uh, yeah, please, happened please. recently that would get people pretty fired up about uh, sure. Well, it gets me fired up anyway, just to see, wow, what, what people are actually subjectively experiencing and, and type yes. of transformations that are going on. I think that in the last three years, uh, we made scientific history. And the beauty behind the measurements that we're seeing and we're getting uh, is that the person is not a Buddhist monk. They're not a, a nun with 40 years of, uh, of dedication. They're not a, a Kabbalist yeah. rabbi. They're, they're not an academic. They're not a scholar. They're not a Zen master. They're just a common person. And mm-hmm. I think that the common person really uh, has to realize that uh, that the practical approach of all of this really is something that they're capable of doing. So when we started seeing the transformations happening uh, in real time in our workshops, you know, people with MS getting out of a wheelchair and walking, uh, yes. you know, people with lupus and chronic pain and celiac disease and all these different amazing things happening in real time. Awesome during our workshops, I knew in that moment that something inside of those people were happening, uh, was happening very specifically. And this is when I decided to bring in a team of researchers and scientists and technicians to begin to measure what was going on with our, with our students. So, for example, we do a lot of quantitative uh, electroencephalographic studies. We measure brain activity and brain waves, and we look for EEGs. seven values in, in yep. measuring how long a person can sustain a state how coherent their brain is, uh, if there's any lag time in the way they, they process information, if they have intrusive thoughts and the default mode uh, networks in their brain are too overactive. We're measuring um, how, how fast they move into meditation, uh, and then we're looking at the amount of energy that's taking place in their brain. And so what we do, we've looked at thousands and thousands of brains at this point, and we, 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 some people, we just measure their brain before they come to the workshop. They go through four and a half days of training, and then we measure their brain mm-hmm. after four and a half days, and we see what type of changes took place, anxiety, depression, cyclic mood problems. We've seen a lot of those changes happen with people just in four days of doing the work. Mm-hmm. We also know that, oh. um, uh, that when we grab people and we set them down and we measure their brains during a meditation in real time, we can gather vital information about what's happening uh, uh, in that person's internal and subjective experience. And um, I also know uh, a lot about how not to change the brain because I can tell you without a doubt that the brain mm-hmm. will never change the brain, that the program will never change the program, that the personality will never change the personality, that the ego uh-huh. never changes the ego, that matter never changes matter. It's only when we become pure consciousness, when we become nobody, 
no one, no thing, no where, and no time, when we are a impossibility. In other words, yes. if you are going to heal by thought alone, then you have to become thought alone. And when people actually reach this point where they are no longer their bodies, they're no longer their identity, they're no longer connected to things or places or time, that's yes. the moment that they're pure consciousness, and they actually are beginning to merge their consciousness with the consciousness of the quantum field. And that mm-hmm. kind of unity that begins to take place starts creating very coherent, organized, highly integrated and synchronized brainwave patterns. And when your brain gets coherent and organized, you get coherent and organized and clear. And so we've seen that when this person reaches this elegant moment, that all of a sudden we see the front of the brain talking to the back of the brain, the right side of the brain talking to the left side of the brain. Different compartments begin to unify, and the person is starting to feel more like themselves because the integration of those different compartments of the brain is creating holism. And every now and then, mm-hmm. somebody strikes the jackpot and their entire brain moves into complete synchrony. Two hemispheres are just, uh, just synchronized as one. And that person is experiencing true wholeness. And every single time we've seen that in real time, we can follow the lead from the computer to the brain cap, and we can turn around and look at that person's face, and there are tears of joy rolling down their face because they feel so whole and so connected to something greater. They feel so in love with life, so satisfied with who they are, so in a state of reverence and gratitude, that in that moment it's impossible for them to want. I mean, how could you want if you're whole? It's impossible. You have everything yes. in your whole. And that's the moment yes. that we've seen some pretty miraculous things occur. So I've done mm. a lot of real-time measurements, and, and we know what works in the brain. We can teach how to induce and, uh, in, uh, students to fall into those, those um, states, and our students can do it in 2 seconds and 4 seconds and 9 seconds and 13 seconds and 18 seconds Remarkable. 22 seconds. Because it's a skill. They just know when they're there and when they're not. And that becomes very significant when it comes time to actually execute uh, and regulate internal changes. We also measure... Now you've got me going, Joe. Now you've really got me going. I I think this is what our audience loves to hear. You know, this is whole brain thinking. This is whole brain being. It's, it's It's actually a total psychosoma merge. It is, because when that coherent signal travels down the central nervous system, when the central nervous system controls and coordinates all other systems, your digestive system, your immune system, your reproductive system, all of a sudden there's a very coherent and organized signal to the body systems, and so the immune system gets more integrated. The digestive system's timing gets better. The heart starts working in more rhythm, and the person starts mm-hmm. to experience the ultimate connection between their mind and their body. So then we started mm-hmm. to measure... Uh, heart rate variability, and we partnered with the HeartMath Institute. Uh, actually, um, sure. was on the phone with the senior research analyst the other day, Roland McCready, and he was so excited, overly joyed about the research uh, from our, 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 our workshops. That um, yes, we know that when a person has a coherent mind or coherent brain, they have a coherent heart, and when they have heart. a coherent heart, they have a coherent mind and brain. So. We also know that when you marry a clear intention with an elevated emotion, the combination of those two things begins to affect matter. So then our students then are taught how to regulate and sustain elevated emotional states from their heart center 
of gratitude, of invincibility, of joy, of wholeness, of inspiration, of enthusiasm, of care, kindness, compassion, uh, those elevated states, that, that's the place we create from. The other centers in the body below then, hormonal centers, have everything to do with survival. So when a person mm-hmm. starts open up the center and they're able to regulate it, the field around their body actually enhances. They begin to make some wonderful immune chemicals like we discussed, and also mm-hmm. then uh, they're in the proper state to create. And the field around their body, the energy field around their body, really, really we've measured uh, begins to expand as well. Now they're more energy and less matter. They're more wave and less particle. And yeah. uh, they be- feel connected to something get greater. And the big thing is that instead of fearing the unknown, uh, they trust in the unknown. And so, um, so we've taught students how to do that. We've also uh, created what's called a global co- coherence. We've had our students all at the same time move into uh, a specific state emotionally like gratitude and appreciation and then as we had, a group. As a group, about 550 people. And then we've had people in the front rows wearing HRV monitors just sitting there. And the influence of the audience on the people in the front of the room causes almost the entire group of people sitting there, their hearts all go into coherence and orderliness mm. at the exact same time, the exact oh same my God. So that's some of the research we'll be presenting with heart math. And so now... People are now oh, creating a true community because they're connected from an elevated energy and a, and a real more coherent energy. And so uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll release that research very soon, and our students then, of course, are, are equipped in the creative process. We also measure the energy in the room. In other words, if everybody's living in a state of love and gratitude, and that's a faster frequency emotion, and everybody's doing it at once, then the summation excuse me, the summation of all the energy in the room should be heightened as well. And in yes. all advanced workshops we've done, every single day the energy in the room builds, and uh, that's, the, that's the energy that uh, uh, the miraculous happens in. So we've also measured the energy around people's bodies, which is uh, with an advanced Carillion machine. We've measured the energy centers of their bodies. We've measured The GDV? The GDV machines, yes. We've also measured uh, epigenetic changes in urine and saliva, cortisol levels going down, DHEA levels going up, oxytocin levels, you know, off the chart in terms of height. Mm. And and recently, uh, which has become now a normal for us, uh, is the amount of energy that's being uh, released in the brain. I mean, when you fire a, a neurological network in your brain, the average amount of energy that's released in that network is about 40 microvolts of energy squared. So like if you're, if you're having an excitatory thought, it goes up to about 60 microvolts of energy. And if you have an inhibitory thought, you know, the brain slows down, it's about uh, 10 microvolts. So 10 to 60 mm-hmm. microvolts of energy squared in the brain is normal. And we're capturing over and over again a million microvolts of energy, 4 million microvolts of energy, a half a million microvolts. What? And uh, it's become a consistent uh, phenomenological process that's occurring. Now, why is that relevant? Because whatever's happening to that person in that moment is a completely real experience to them. In other words, they're having an inner experience that is so real and so powerful that it's transcending any outer past experience. So that inner event 
uh, is causing them to have, a, in other words, a full-on sensory experience without their senses. Now imagine if your senses were heightened by 25% right now. Everything you saw, everything you heard, everything you smelled, everything you tasted, everything you felt was enhanced by 25%. We could say that your awareness of reality would be enhanced as well. Well, every single case, a person's having a very mystical experience. And since experience then enriches the brain, and since experience produces chemicals called emotions, if they have a high-amplitude experience like that that's not in conventional world but is in the other world, their brain and body literally are moving out of the past because the experience then is reorganizing the circuits in their brain and the chemistry from the experience is beginning to signal new genes in new ways. And we've seen instantaneous and spontaneous remissions happen uh, right in one experience. And it's, it's, it's becoming uh, quite the phenomenon. We were just in Germany just a couple of weeks ago, and this one woman had between a half a million and a million microvolts of energy sustained for 17 minutes. And uh, the neuroscientists and I were looking, just shaking our head, knowing, number one, you'll never see that measurement in a clinical setting. And number two, she can't make her brain do that. It's happening to her. She's having an experience that she's surrendering to. And that subjective experience isn't just some subjective experience where she's visualizing. That's not what's happening. She's having a vision. She's having an experience. Brain and body are catching up and. Uh, literally, uh, that's when the, when the past no longer exists. That's the moment that the disease no longer exists either. So uh, we're seeing it over and over again. And and this woman that went for 17 minutes in in uh, in, in uh, Munich, Germany. we were just yeah, we were smiling because we knew that she was having a very real moment. And um, the, the the amplitudes got so high on the on the computer that uh, in the next moment we just saw on the strip chart, just lines. In other words, it didn't look like alpha, beta, theta. It was just a flat line. We thought, you know, like you look like she went brain dead. But we looked at her and she was there. And uh, we knew in that moment that her amplitudes were so high that the computer program couldn't calibrate it because it hasn't, it never, no one ever thought that it would go that high. <laughs> oh, so, my pretty word. exciting moment. Was it was it at Delta? Did it go to Delta, where there is such slow brain movement? Okay, this is a very uh, brainwave frequency. Okay, so I've never talked about this before, but let's say this. Okay. Um, when so picture a strip chart, you know, you see like a little alpha, beta, little lines going by. Uh, that's yeah. normal. But now, now just imagine taking a handful of Crayola crayons, like eight crayons of every color and then just uh-huh. running the crayons up and down along the strip chart so it looks like a snowstorm. And you can't even <laughs> see the lines anymore. It just looks like a big snowstorm of all these different colors. That's what it looks like on a strip chart. So there's no uh-huh. way for us to measure what's going on in there because you can't even see the lines anymore. When that happens, oh. then we have to go to another measurement called the joint time frequency analysis to be able to extrapolate the values and the numbers that are taking place. So... The amplitudes, then, is the amount of energy in the brain. The brainwave states that the people are in are very, all of a sudden we're starting to see something very unusual. I haven't talked about this at all. Mm-hmm. And that is that when, the, when you see those high amplitudes of energy, some people, the ones that are producing the highest amplitudes, their brainwaves are in delta. In other words, their body is yeah. sound asleep. There's no resistance yeah. in the nervous system. Now, we've seen people 
with the same kind of uh, patterns on the, on the strip chart, but they're only at 4,000 microvolts of energy, still pretty high compared to 10 to 60, but their brain waves yeah. are in alpha. In other words, they're a little bit more conscious. So they haven't surrendered completely to the experience. And other people mm-hmm. are in theta, and some people are in uh, mid-range. And so sure. it seems sure. like the more deeper the person goes, the more their, their personality is out of the way, the higher the amplitudes of energy because there's less resistance in the body. Indeed. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. You know, I used to work with a gentleman named Brother Charles, now known as Master Charles, who started something called the Recognitions Experience, Synchronicity, the Recognition Experience back in the 1980s. And he he was playing with, like the Monroe Institute, uh, binaural beat and putting certain messages in there too. But he had one tape that he gave me, and very few people actually, which was a pure binaural beat delta and it just sounded like an ocean wave and it was so difficult to remain conscious but to whatever extent you were conscious you felt so good and complete and sort of like you were describing before joe when you are in the quantum field when there is no one home in the way we know ourselves that that precious and uh, you're reminding me of that experience that I used to have using really literally music, sound, natural sound in this case, uh, to create something somewhat similar to what you're describing. It's awesome that you're getting these these kinds of results. So would, how would you compare that woman's experience in those 17 minutes and what you were measuring with the uh, classical idea of samadhi or enlightenment we know from the East? Um, I think samadhi would you? really is, is a sustained state of consciousness where you are completely connected or more connected to that intelligence within us. Uh, we're seeing mm-hmm. transient moments of this, so it's almost like there's a bleed-through uh, yeah. where the person is actually experiencing, like like they're experiencing a transcendent state in that moment. They're having a, they're having, they're no longer fo- focusing on matter. They're no longer focusing on the particle. They're focusing on energy and the wave of information yeah. where the quantum world exists. So. All of their attention is off their body, their environment, and time. And so when we've seen this, uh, um, where a person actually has slipped into the state uh, and they have that kind of coherence, we've had neuroscientists and scientists come and observe our students and say, oh, they're having a seizure. And I said to them, really? Does she look like she's having a seizure sitting over there? I mean, the rest of her... Yeah, the rest of her brain would have been very out of balance. And secondly... She's wearing a heart rate monitor. And for those moments where she's processing a million microvolts of energy in her brain, her heart is in complete order and coherence. She's experiencing for 60 minutes such heart rate orderliness. She's in a state of love. She's in a state of gratitude. And when you're in that kind of state of love and gratitude, you typically are not having a seizure. So our research goes contrary uh, to the conventional model. And and I was uh, in Portugal uh, last year. And in, in, actually, yeah, it was yeah. the end of last year, and I had a, a group of scientists that were outside my event picketing, picketing my event, and I, I called them in and said, come on and sit down ah. with me. And they wouldn't come in, but they sent the news reporter in. 
And they were concerned because they couldn't understand my research because it, it wasn't normal. And I said to them, I'm not interested in studying normal or natural. I'm interested in studying supernatural. I'll leave the normal and natural up to you guys. I want the phenomenological stuff that's outside of the box. And, uh, sure. you know, and, and if it's happening so often, which it is now, and it's happening so consistently, uh, a new model has to be created. And, and, um, and that's yes. where, when it gets exciting. It gets super exciting. God, and by the way, God, we also did a, so the experiment in, uh, in, in Carefree, Arizona, in, in uh, uh, April of this year, where we we extracted uh, people's blood, and uh, we had a blood on their blood on a slide at a remote location. Like live blood cell analysis. Live blood cell analysis, and when the mm-hmm. person had an amplitude that jumped in their brain at the exact same moment, there was an, a jump in amplitude in their brain at a remote location. There was a reorganization of their blood at the exact same moment. So. There's a kind of a non-local phenomenon that happened oh, as well that was really cool. My. Oh, that is so cool. And I know at that same workshop of perhaps the year before, you had some phenomenal healings that took place with with uh, tumors that had been embedded chronically in people's bodies, just literally falling off after doing the work that you've been essentially modeling and instructing people to do. Well, I, as I said when we started this uh, interview, I, I am on a daily basis, if not a weekly basis, I am pretty surprised at some of the things that we're seeing that, uh, wow, just the power of the Joe, common... you are... Just- Living in a state of blissful humility, <laughs> you know, you are. I am humbled, humbled by, by. I am very humbled by the, the whole magic. thing because it's really, yeah. it's really quite majestic. Uh, I was just in Australia, and I'll tell you a quick story before we finish here. Uh, yes. Young guy uh, gets involved in a very serious car accident. Uh, his face smashes into the windshield. It break, breaks every bone in his face. Flattened his whole entire facial structure, and they reconstructed his face with titanium. And the problem was is that when you hit something that hard in the brain or the head decelerates, the brain slushes back and forth. It's like a soft-boiled egg inside Inside the cavern of the skull. And there's some very sharp and rough edges of the skull, and sometimes it can sever nerves. And in this guy's case, he completely severed his olfactory nerve, like severed it in half, Mm. both of them. And so he lost his sense of smell and his sense of taste and... The trauma, of course, uh, to the frontal lobe, uh, shut off the frontal lobe, and, and uh, they told him after three MRIs he'd never smell again and that uh, he had brain, in, brain injuries and that he was, uh, you know, pretty much be uh, suffering the rest of his life from depression. And So he picked up the placebo, picked up the book and started reading it and wound up at an event of mine in, in, uh, in Melbourne, Australia. And, uh, God, the second day of the event, he leaned over to kiss his girlfriend after the meditation and he could smell her, her uh, shampoo, which was really surprising to him. God. So from that moment on, it, the doors opened. And um, yeah. by the time he came yeah. to the advanced workshop, uh, he was smelling uh, the earth in the morning, you know, the fungan earth in the morning. He could mm-hmm. drink wine again and taste wine. I mean, he just, I mean, I never anticipated that that would ever happen. But gotcha. uh, uh, you when you sever an olfactory nerve, it's like having a spinal cord injury. The nerves aren't supposed to grow mm-hmm. back. And there was, according to him, 
like a four millimeter gap between with scar tissue between the two ends of the nerve and uh well he's uh, by the end of that event he was smelling and laughing and pretty happy about his life so um Events like that are typically very surprising to me when they hap- that happen so quickly and so beautifully. Yes, so quickly, so quickly. That is just phenomenal. Joe, just tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. I know you are, uh, before you go, you are going to be up at the Omega Institute, is that correct? Uh, with John Holland, Donna Eden, who I met out in Boulder at a uh, Subtle Energy Conference, David Feinstein, September 25th and 27th. Is that yeah, all on your website? Yeah. Yeah, we'll be doing a we'll be doing a little uh, consortium there with uh, John Holland and, and Donna Eden and uh, David Feinstein, and uh, kind of a little blend between psycho spiritual stuff and and energy medicine and mind over matter, and kind of weaving together a, a model for people to really start taking home uh, into their life, and um, it'll be at the Omega Institute there in, in September, and then I'll be at, at the Kripalu. Uh, 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 Yoga Institute in March of 2016, yeah. also doing a progressive workshop. Well, that's more like uh, two and a half days of just um, hanging out and just yeah. doing a lot of meditations and, and understanding the science and, and retreating from yes. your life long enough to get it wired in your brain and body. And, and uh, <laughs> right, I know. I got mine. I got mine wired last October. I think it was in Norwalk. Thank you very much. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yes. I know what it's like to spend two and a half days with you uh, very intensely focused on this material. It's incredible. On that same uh, note, uh, you, through Hay House, you are offering uh, Making Your Mind Matter, of course. I love it. And is that a teleconference? What, how does that work? Yeah, so Hay House, uh, we've gotten such a great response from my last two books that uh, Hay House asked me to do uh, a... Um, an online course where I could bring a lot of the concepts in in small sound bites of you know 30 minutes or so for people to kind of wrap their mind around, and it goes for like uh, eight to eight to 12 or 16 weeks, and uh, they just kind of get familiar with the content, and then there's meditations and stuff for them to practice. Yes. And, and served up in a way that they can make some headway. Yes. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, I hope to see you soon at one of these events, and uh, we'll have you on A Better World TV coming up when you're in New York for the Omega uh, Center uh, event. So, uh, Joe Dispenza, thank you so much for your brilliant work. It's truly brilliant, and as you said, you are helping to make scientific history with what you're doing, and the Portuguese neuroscientists with their placards is just an excellent sign, no pun intended, of exactly the kind of work you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for doing your work, too, Michelle. I appreciate uh, your contribution to humanity. Well, thank you so much, my friend. Great to talk to you, and I love having you on, and we'll have you on again soon, and I'll see you soon in New York. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye now. Bye. Joe, bye-bye. Dr. Joe Dispenza, just as I said at the beginning, just truly one of my favorite teachers, and uh, he articulates that relationship between mind and body, body and brain, the chemistry therein, and the power of our mind to intend to conceive and how to link our intention and our imagery, essentially, with uh, elevated 
states of being that come through simple emotions, such as gratitude, the experience, we didn't talk about it, but of beauty, of awe, of love, of a moment of compassion, of a moment of tenderness. These types of very special, very simple, and very available kinds of emotions when linked, because those, as he so well put it, emotions and feelings are the language of the body and thoughts the language of the brain and nourishment, by the way. And when these two are brought together, unified unified field, the results are, well, you want to talk about human potential? That's what's happening. That is what's happening. So I, I have experienced, I've known Joe for some years now. I've been to several of his workshops myself personally, and it's uh, a major, major piece of my understanding of the way uh, the system works, psychobiology, psychospirituality, however you want to put it, it doesn't matter. Uh, we are putting uh, measurements, metrics, to phenomena occurring in the brain, the heart, the nervous system that is demonstrating the way uh, certain states allow for certain kinds of mending and healing of a level, like the story in Australia of the young man who lost his sense of smell through the severing of his olfactory nerve. Now, how in the world can you explain how that scar tissue, four millimeters apart, would come back together, reunite, unless a question I had asked at the beginning about operating according to different laws, and that remain that's just one way of expressing it. But what we do seem to know is these elevated states of mind, body, consciousness, and I really put it that way deliberately, allow for a becoming whole again, if you will like the stories Joe was telling about wholeness early on. And front, back, right, left of the brain, and then measuring through the HeartMath Institute, which we've had on the show a few times and love their work, uh, again, with the coherence of the heart matching that of the brain. Do you see? This is called the new human. Forget the whole transhuman thing, you know. You don't have to add computer chips to the body for it to become super. We already have the chemistry. We already have the electricity. And we have that access to human will and access to the self beyond the ordinary personality self. So magic can really happen, that level of soul, that eternal nature of ours that goes beyond what we imagine and includes, by the way, so much of what we imagine. I also want to bring to bear that uh, the book, You Are the Placebo, phenomenal read, by the way, just it's just chock full of study after study showing, demonstrating scientifically, how the mind operates relative to the body and the power therein. It's uh, 
for people who are, I love this word, skeptical, people who are, another way of saying that is, people who hold themselves back from just encountering certain truths that are really present in our world, but just don't know how to organize it. Don't worry. Allow yourself to be in the face of things that seem impossible. And soon, you will too will be impossibly smart. That's what happens. Uh, Yes, so I wanted to say uh, the placebo, You Are the Placebo, is coming out by Hay House in mid-September in paperback. So that will be available and um, coming up just in the end of September, as Joe mentioned, he'll be at the Omega Institute September 25th through 27th with John Holland, Donnie Eden, who I had a chance to meet some years back when I was helping to uh, market this really interesting little EEG device, in fact, wireless and gel-free that I of course, put on Joe's head at one point or another here in New York, and a very, very interesting type of unit that helps people also graduate to higher levels of coherence. Um, So Donna is a lovely, lovely, full of joy type of woman. So this is something that you would want, if you can, get up to Omega Institute. It's not that far from New York, up in the uh, Hudson Valley, where I went to college some moons back, you'll definitely enjoy that and his other workshops. Just go to Dr. Joe Dispenza, D-I-S-P-E-N-Z-A. Just really Spenza. I think the etymology is connected to Esperanza, which means hope. Indeed. It also means to wait. So one must be patient and have hope and all good things will befall thee. So with that said, I want to just thank you all for being here today and tuning in. If you want, go to our radio archive, abetterworld.tv, and put in Joe's name, and you can hear my uh, previous interviews with him and on A Better World TV, which we'll be doing more of in the very near future. Thanks again for joining. Uh, Get our newsletter, as I reminded you earlier, at abetterworld.tv. Thanks so much for being part of our community. Pass this on to friends as well and other scientists who you feel doctors should have access to this kind of breakthrough, pioneering type of information because it's literally world-changing. On that note, thanks so much again for joining, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. 